Welcome to the House of Strauss. Yeah, go for it. Stars hang with stars, winners hang with winners. This is House of Strauss. I am joined by the best New York politics reporter there is. And I'm not even going to allow him to be humble about it. It is Ross Barkin, friend of the podcast. Back once again. How you doing? I'm good. I think this is appearance number three for me. So I'm excited. I'm slowly joining the, the regular cast, which I like. I like that a lot. Yeah, you will be sent a, a T-shirt, uh, some matter of trinket, uh, maybe a medal. Um, we have a whole tier system for our friends of the podcast. Um, although, Ross, I do not want to be too glib, considering the uh, heavy subject material that we might get in. And I want to do a preamble before getting into all of it. Um, I am fascinated by the Israel-Gaza situation in the United States. I'll just say it. I'll throw it out there. And I know some of you listening probably might enjoy more of the uh, sports culture, sports business uh, commentary that happens on this podcast and on the site. And I am sympathetic to you. So uh, I am beginning this with an apology to some of my listeners. Uh, I understand where you're coming from if you don't want to hear the following conversation. Um, but as happens on my website, I tend to just try to channel whatever I'm interested in in the hopes that somebody else will be interested in it. And one of the reasons I like having Ross on is because nobody covers uh, a lot of what he's covering as well as he does it. So uh, I'm done with my whole awkward uh, preamble, Ross. Uh, you're, <laughs> you're going to an event today. You know, we're fitting you in before you go to something. What are you going to? So it's a community conversation that N NYU is having about the Israel Palestinian uh, situation. Mm. And, and so I think after many weeks, they've decided to do this since the, there's been a, a student body demand for it. It's particularly for the journalism department. So I'm curious to see how it goes. Um, mm. I, I'm intrigued. I have been obviously writing about and following the Israel situation for many years now as, as a I know you're you're Jewish as well, so this is two Jewish people speaking. So we can we we can establish that for the audience to two Jews <laughs> talking about it. It's it very stereotypical media situation over here. Um, They're everywhere. Yeah, yeah. I don't. And I'm thinking about it. I went on birthright back in the day. I didn't like it. I mean, I'm studying like the the parameters How was of where I'm at. I, I I never never did it. I, I I thought about it. Never never been to Israel. I. You know, maybe I can throw up a picture uh, in the uh, when I post this. There's a picture of me at something called the Mega Event, which is this massive amphitheater where they do. It's almost like there's an IMAX screen and there was throbbing techno music and it had aspects of TRL. And I felt like it was a very peppy brainwashing session that reminded me a little bit of in Zoolander uh, where they're trying to get him to kill the prime minister of Malaysia. Um, there was just, just over stimuli and God of that era. Now I'm, now I'm going really back in, uh, in, in my memory right here. Um, I, I felt like there was this force trying to sweep me up 
in this enthusiasm and I just felt very awkward about it. Uh, I remember, you know, at this mega event with the pulsating lights and the music, um, there was this, I swear to God, I'm not making this up. There's this massive <laughs> IMAX style screen. Um, and suddenly the techno music is really going, it's thumping and it's going Israel peace, Israel peace, Israel peace. <laughs> and you're seeing the star, see the star David flash on the screen. And I swear to God, a dove, a white dove is starting small and it's flying at us and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger until it's 20 feet tall as the star of David flashes at and, Israel peace, Israel peace, Israel and, peace. And, 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 and nothing bad ever happened again, and everyone lives happily ever after. Yeah, yeah. Ha well, there was Hamas, a lot of Hamas came to the negotiating uh, table. Netanyahu decided that it's time to have, have peace, and, and not, nothing, nothing untoward ever happened again after that techno display. So uh, we can end be, the podcast only, right now. If only our enthusiasm in that moment. Um, no, they wanted everybody to make Aliyah. There was this sort of knockoff Israeli. Uh, Carson Daly interviewing kids who would then pop up on the screen as the Israel peace was happening and go, hi, my name's Rebecca from Teaneck, New Jersey, and I want to make Aliyah so hard. Woo! Like that was happening at the same time. Um, and yeah, there have been people who went on birthright. They, they quite enjoyed it, but I went through the Berkeley Hillel and they had us going from 6 a.m. to midnight and you weren't allowed to really leave the group, which oh, is terrible. Uh, what they kind of typically do in, in cult-like situations. And look, it was for other people. There's a picture I can put up there of myself at the mega event looking miserable while everybody <laughs> else, uh, they're waving the flags and they look overjoyed. So this might be... Um, this might be <laughs> Anthony Mays in the chat says this sounds like a traumatic origin for why I don't like concerts. No, that was rock the bells where I had a bad experience with rage against the machine. Um, that's, that's really more the origin story right there. Um, so anyway, that's a, that's an entire detour. Yes. You've, yeah. you've established parameters. You've established establish ground rules. We are not going rules. to analyze on a granular level, the siege of Gaza and what is happening uh, on the ground in Israel. I think this conversation is really going to be more about these interesting issues that have popped up where this is, you know, like theoretically something that should only interest a narrow band of Americans. And yet it's exposing this big generation gap. And it's also uh, causing all sorts of fractures within the Democratic Party and to a certain extent on the right as well. And so it's just, it's just very interesting, Ross. And it, 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 uh, it yeah. is. It, it's it's like a giant metaphorical bomb. Though there are many real bombs. A giant mm. metaphorical bomb in the American political and ideological firmament. And and, and I, I find it fascinating. I, I really do. And yeah, we're we're not. Yeah. You can only litigate the Middle East so much. And and two-state solution, one-state solution, no, no solution right now. But I, I think what we can definitely get into are the dynamics here. And, and I'd say right off the bat, something your audience would probably be interested in and I, I'm interested in is how this has divided the, the wokes and the anti-wokes. Yeah. Uh, th 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 this, yeah. this is different This is different than 2020 and, and, and BLM and, and, and George Floyd and I I have been really um, 
trying to think through and, and analyze what's going on. And, and, you know, when, when you think of the, the, for lack of a better word, the wokes and the anti-wokes, right. Uh, there's sort of this, this simplistic way they're all portrayed, right. It's well, one, one school is like Barry Weiss and Glenn Greenwald and, and those ki- kinds of people. And then the other school is like Ibram Kendi or something. And I think what's interesting about Israel uh, and, and, and the, the Palestinian fight is that the, these alliances have been somewhat scrambled, that you actually have yep. divisions within the anti-woke world. And you have, you know, even some wokes and anti-wokes aligned, some anti-wokes adopting yep. the posture of woke. And, and that that's hmm. something I've, I've also been a bit amused by. And I think some some commentators have been very astute about this i'd say particularly glenn greenwald and, and michael tracy and and i think lee, lee fong who's on your on yeah. your show and and um and, and zed jelani who've actually written and, and spoken about this a bit where you know for a very long time for several years now you've had kind of the anti-woke side being very committed to the principles of free speech to also decrying safetyism, decrying identity and emotional based appeals. And we saw that throughout 2020 and 2021. And what I find interesting now is when it comes to Israel, some of that gets thrown out the window and all of a sudden you you find some of the anti-woke side, not all, adopting some of the same rhetoric you mm-hmm. heard from like the social justice warrior set, the identity first set. Um, and perhaps they're aware of that, perhaps they're not. But I, but I do think that the, the Israel situation really scrambles things a lot and, and more so than anything else, because I think like you pointed out, it's not like Americans care about what's happening to the Armenians. It's not like Americans no. care about Sudan. There's so many tragedies throughout the world, so many oppressed people throughout the world. But Israel, the Palestinians, I mean, this stuff is just rocket fuel for everyone and and it it, it will not end it it will continue it is it is inexhaustible it's an inexhaustible resource for debate yeah and it probably is whether or not the united states is supporting israel uh monetarily and militarily and and whatnot it just seems to be in the cultural firmament i've been shocked by the extent of uh, just the amount of energy on the youthful kind of pro-Palestinian anti-Israel side of things, because as you've pointed out, there isn't a lot of institutional backing uh, for it. And we come up with these theories of how does a current thing happen? You know, how do these hysterias, these mimesis, mimesi, I don't know. But if you're more of a top-down thinker, you go, well, these NGOs are you know, setting it off and it's to the advantage of the Democratic Party that everybody freaks out about police violence in 2020 or, you know, that could be your theory. But this police violence has completely stopped, by the way, now that Israel, uh, there's no problem with the police anymore. No one's talking about it. The the NYPD healed. Everything's great. No, that's over. It's over. Over. Out. The the war in Ukraine has also ended. It's It's, it's amazing. It's It's, just, yes, they solved it. There's one current thing. And so, you know, I I guess what I'm wondering is what do you think of some of the theories people are throwing out there about TikTok, about how, well, a foreign country controls the app of the youth? 
I'm suspicious of this. I'll just put my thought on it. I'm suspicious of that thinking, mostly because I cannot prove that China is doing anything, and uh, and I can't even prove that they would even care. And this just to me seems more organic and um, in the oppressed versus oppressor matrix that a lot of young people are bought into. This just seems to be a natural outgrowth of that. Am I doing the thing where I'm I'm basically answering the question how you would answer it, Ross, before I put it up uh, for you to answer? Um, no, not necessarily, though, though I definitely would agree. I think those who argue TikTok is shaping the youth, I mean, certainly how people interact with the news and consume images and how misinformation flies, sure. But it, it is very organic, this generational divide. It's very real. And it's been brewing for years. You know, I, I wrote a piece in, back in 2017 about it. There's nothing new about older people being much more pro-Israel than younger yeah. people. Younger people, the same people who are excited by Black Lives Matter, who cared so much about police brutality, now they're into the Palestinian cause. They see the Palestinian as oppressed. They view the power dynamic. They see Israel as the country with all the weapons, the Palestinians in Gaza as those who are under attack. And that's how they have organized themselves. And that's very tangible. And that would exist without TikTok. You don't need TikTok yeah. there for those dynamics to exist. The older generation has memories of a different Israel. And, and, and this is something I do think that people cannot overlook. If you are 35 or younger, you have known Israel under conservative uh, right-wing governance. I mean, that, putting aside any arguments about Israel, that is a fact. If you are a liberal, leftist, progressive, whatever, you see Israel as a country fundamentally governed by the right. Even though it is a democracy, they, they are in some senses very socially liberal, it has been conservative governance. Whereas if you're older, you remember the Labor Party, you remember a different kind of Zionism, even like a socialist Zionism. That's out the window now, but that is what your working memory is. So these, these, these divides are very genuine. I think what's interesting is how quickly people can be consumed by one cause and then head into a different cause, right? And that is from mm. Black Lives Matter to Palestine. The difference between Black Lives Matter and, and Palestine, as I'm sure you've noticed too, is the institutional buy-in. In 2020, yeah. the corporate uh, corporations, academia, media were completely united around racial justice or pretending to care about racial justice. They all bought into DEI. You've written very well about it, the NBA. You pick an institution all in a thousand percent. Israel and the Palestinians are very, very different where it's the same on the ground. It's the same kind of activist, young uh, culture that is into it. But this time, the colleges in terms of the administrations are not buying in the uh, major professional sports leagues are not buying yeah. in. I've not seen a from the river to the sea coming from Adam no. Silver Sport, or sports, from Rob Manfred sport. has not happened. Okay, I, I'll just interject quickly. You're arriving at something <laughs> that I've nearly written about, which is sports is a massive dog that has not barked in this situation. You know, the only thing you've seen is really the other way, where if you're watching 
football, Mike Tirico talks about the hostages and the situation over there and has mentioned it, but there's not, yes, there's not a lot of um, sympathy for the Gazans uh, in sports being expressed currently. Yes. Continue. No. So massive differences between 2020 and 2023 are the institutions with power and influence and even the media to an extent not following the activists anymore and and we can debate why yeah. i think there's there's a few different reasons i mean one is there there is definitely weariness i think among the powerful institutions with yeah. the activist left i see this in academia now where i do feel there are a lot of institutions that did these very tortured, fraught 2020 racial justice statements. And I think now they have buyer's remorse because they realize, well, if you did it for that, you, you kind of have to, people have the expectation you're going to do it for everything, right? You did it for Ukraine too. You sort of had the carryover from BLM to, you know, stand with Ukraine. It, it felt very similar. And I do think now Israel and Gaza, it is so controversial, so fraught. These institutions are like, we have to do this again. And a lot of them are yep. just backing off. And some of them are genuinely supportive of Israel. And I don't want to undersell that, that among people in influence, you know, in powerful positions, in the American firmament. I am Jewish, so this is not anti-Semitic. There are there are there are Jewish and Jewish sympathizing people in places mm. of power. Adam Silver is is Jewish. A baseball this, this, used to be run. Rob, Rob Manfred's Jewish too, I believe. Is he not? The, the, I, yeah, I don't know if Rob Gary, Manfred Gary, is Jewish. Is he not, or maybe he's not Jewish. Bud Selig, of Siegel. course, is Jewish. Rob I mean, Manfred, we have to check. <laughs> yeah, we'll but, check. We'll do an Bud early Selig life was. check. We'll, we'll do an early life Get, check on Rob Manfred Gary right Bettman, now. Gary <laughs> Bettman, Jew. So, you know, you know it's... No, it's, you're but, talking but, about something that's really... I talked about it with Katie Herzog a bit. It's taboo, but it's very intuitive. And I wish we could just have a grown up conversation about this, that people are more likely to support causes that they have some sort of attachment to ethnically or otherwise. And that is just real life. And that's, I, I don't see an early life check on uh, on Rob Manfred being Jewish on the Wikipedia. No, I don't, no not, no. Sadly, yeah. we, we missed yeah. out. No, a, a Jew is not running Major League Baseball anymore. That's sad. Uh, yeah, it's, that's a bad sign. A lot of Jewish slippage. general managers. The, the Red Sox just fired well, their Orthodox Jewish uh, general managers. So. Well, traditionally, football is run by a goy, and the Jews run the other sports. And that was uh, part of the Balfour Declaration that people yeah. don't talk about enough. That was well, a little when's bit the last of, time uh, a, a non When's the last time a non-Jew ran the NBA? Because he's stern, <laughs> silver. How far um, back do you have to go for a, a goy to run the NBA? It's a good question. I mean, this this is uh, I can. That's an article I can work on um, <laughs> and get similarly uh, attacked in the way Elon Musk is being attacked for uh, talking about Jewish communities that have been pushing the dialectical hatred against whites or whatever uh, he said was uh, true recently. God, this issue has just exploded in so many, so many different, so many different ways. And um, yeah, sports have not really gone there. Um, there might actually be a slightly, uh, this is hot to touch right here. There might be a weird anti-Semitism that is part of why that's happening because I've talked you know, I've talked to players like players in the NBA 
a lot of them do have opinions that would be regarded as mm. anti-Semitic, but it's so weird because they go, it's anti-Semitic, but it's also sometimes anti and philo-Semitic all at once. It's like, man, you guys run everything. Like I got to get on that level. That's sort of like that sort of mentality. Yeah. I've been in locker rooms where it's being discussed like that. And there might actually be a sense in some of these leagues of, oh, you don't want to touch that. I mean, they run everything like that might actually be part of why you haven't so much heard activism from oh, yeah. the athletes, uh, uh, which who knows? Oh yeah. I, I have no doubt that, but, but among the major professional sports of which you know, the players are overwhelmingly not Jewish. And I, I, I track the very, in, in baseball, certainly I track the very few Jewish players who are there. It's always very exciting that, you know, so you have you know a 99% non Jewish, um, you know, makeup among athletes in the major sports, right? And I'm sure amongst them, there are those who are not anti-Semitic at heart. I, I think genuinely yeah. few people burn with hatred for, for Jewish people, but certainly many people say things that can sound or be construed as anti-Semitism. I, I think that's very true. And I have no doubt that if you walked in an NBA locker room, an MLB clubhouse, you know, go, go, go in the NFL that you would, you would hear many things that, that if they're put on yeah. the internet, like, my God, what are they oh saying God. about the Jewish people? My favorite was a player and maybe people will speculate on who, uh, <laughs> a player who told me that he was reading Yuval Harari and it was giving him a better sense of how you people have really grouped together and done things good for yourselves. And, uh, <laughs> but he was quite enthusiastic oh about this. He yeah. was, uh, he right. was that's learning sort of, that, that's sort of, yeah, that, that po the positive, the positive anti-Semitism, I guess a model minority myth of like, wow, you guys really have succeeded in running all the banks and, and running. The yeah. Media. How do we, you guys how do we really do that? figured that, you guys really figured this thing out and, uh, you know, the way you run the media and, and control the messaging. And, and yeah. you know, there definitely is that sentiment. And I don't want to over-index that or overanalyze that as why it's been quiet on the sports front. But it's definitely been quiet. This is a current thing that professional sports has largely sat out, which is a wrinkle, but it's just chaos right now. It's chaos as, as you're saying. It's John Fetterman, uh, lefty <laughs> senator, wrapping himself in the Israeli flag as DSA members rend garments and wail to the heavens. It's just, it's just so interesting to see how this is split things. Um, and I, I, I'm a little curious about the the anti wokes who have adopted the language of um, mm. safety and everything else. Uh, who I'm not I, I, like I'm aware that exists, but I don't know who it is specifically. Like who would you put in that bucket of somebody who's yeah. done that? Because I've seen that that accusation of hypocrisy yeah. being levied. I, I would start with certain Republicans and like the National Review who were very critical of the social justice left, very critical of the woke left. You know, people like Tom Cotton who are like, we have to round up and and really bring bring the power of the government against anyone who, who speaks ill of Israel and, and, and deport people even. I obviously, mm -hmm. you know, Barry Weiss is sort of, you know, because she is such a staunch Zionist, this has always been her issue. Though I think the, the free press has published some nuanced stuff on it. I, I, heard, I put her into that bucket along with, I'd say, a lot of people from more the Republican 
right. Mm. I think some some of the anti-wokes who float on the left have been more consistent. Again, Glenn Greenwald has been highly critical of those who are cracking down on the pro Palestinian left. And you're seeing a real speech crackdown on those who express anti-Israel opinions, certainly in the arts world, in, in, in academia now. Um, so th- those those are the people who come to mind initially. You know, I, I've been seeing a lot, and I, and I'm, I don't want to undersell that there are Jews who feel unsafe right now, who feel unsafe on college campuses. There, there certainly no. are. Uh, I do not think anti-Zionists or anti-Semites. I'll, I'll say that right now. But at the same time, I don't doubt oh, there are gen- genuine. Gen- I don't doubt there are genuine anti-Semites who will graft onto the anti-Zionist cause, like a David Duke or, or Pat Buchanan would graft okay. onto the anti-Zionist I- cause. But I do no. I okay. do, I I do reject the notion that an anti-Zionist is an anti-Semite. I will say that okay. up front. I feel like I'm Nick Wright, but instead of talking about sports, I'm 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 <laughs> doing like a little rhetorical trick about something more serious. I yeah. don't believe in Zionism as a concept. That would be my Nick Wright, like you know, my Nick Wright shift. And what I mean by that is that I think the issue with saying Zionism or Zionist, it almost insinuates that it's a live ball. And Israel exists. And I, yeah. I think a lot of people talking about this situation, um, you know, I don't want to seem condescending, but a lot of them just don't know anything. Like they really yeah. don't know anything. Obviously, there's a lot that you and I don't know. You know, we don't live in Israel. I don't speak Hebrew. Um, I took an Arabic class, but I don't speak Arabic. Uh, I don't know why I felt the need to tell people I took an Arabic class in college. It wasn't very, it wasn't necessary for me to tell people that, but uh, it it happened and it's out there. Um, but, but like, I know basic things, you know, I know that Gaza and the West bank are different places. When I see the TikToks and I see people on Instagram with their impassioned speeches, I, if I had to bet money, I would bet money that most of those people don't even know that they're different places and don't even know that they're oh, different absolutely. situations. So yes. I, I just I, – I think for a lot of people, these, this is like – it's very abstract. These are abstractions. I don't think they have a sense of the scale. I think if you ask them how many people lived in Israel, I'd be fascinated by the responses. I don't think yeah. they understand that there are 7 million Jews living in Israel. There's not – they're they're not just going to go home. Like this is like this is a place that exists. Now, if we want to say Zionism is um, a term for expansionism or you know gaining more territory, um, then you know maybe we can sort of tweak tweak what that means. But yeah, I feel like it, and and Ross actually it does complicate. I mean, you've been writing about this the, this sort of distinction between Zionism and Judaism or pro-Israel and Judaism. And that's real, but I think it's going to be complicated as we move forward because we're going to reach the point pretty soon where half the world's Jews live in Israel. We're going to reach the point soon where the more liberal Jews don't have kids, frankly. The religious Jews have tons of kids. They're way more pro-Israel. So this sort of distinction, I think, um, is going to go away with time. So I'm just throwing all of that out there. This is just making a grab bag of points. I I, I don't know if... 
have the Jews of the world to live there. I do think that the secular Jew will slowly die out as the Orthodox and the religious Jews have more children. I, I agree that in the next 40, 50 Ooh. years, that is the that is the inevitable trajectory. But you have a yeah. lot of Orthodox now right. in the United States. New York has very large Hasidic communities that are not going anywhere. So I would say as this much is, as Israel I, grows, I did not, some I did are staying here in America. I did not anticipate this discussion slash debate of uh, because the Orthodox are having so many kids in New York, which is another conversation we can have. Yes. I- I- Israel is not going to be uh, half the Jewish population of the world. This is a very, you know, niche. I mean, right now it's about 7 million Jews in Israel, 16 million Jews worldwide. Um yeah, man, I feel like it's that's going to happen within our lifetimes if we live a decent, lead a decent life. But maybe we can uh, we we can look into the demography of the whole thing. Um, where even was I in all of this? Oh, basically, I would, I this go, is a very yeah. yeah. Well, I would <laughs> go back to an, an earlier point you made, which is how the Israel situation is so much more fraught and. In complex and has so many different corridors of knowledge than something like racial justice in the United States or police brutality. I think now yeah. policing is a very complex topic. It is, and that was lost in in the debates of 2020. Certainly, the nuance of policing was thrown out the window when people embraced defund and abolish. At the same time, I think there was a reason a lot of people in power rushed headlong into it because it seems very easy. It's well, black people have had a very tough time in the United States. They were literally enslaved. The police do abuse black people. They also abuse white people as well. Poor white people uh, have not fared well with the police either, but it, it ultimately is a topic that you can wrap your arms around more easily. I think a lot of people are rushing headlong into Israel and the Palestinian situation without knowing very much. But I also think at the same time, that's why you get the relative silence from the sports leagues, why academia and corporate America, you know, Amazon and Nike putting out racial justice statements, they're not going near this. And, and there, and there's good reason for it because it is very complicated. I, I think not to go too hard into the geopolitics, oh, but yes, yeah. Israel is going to exist. It is an established country. It, it, it's merely a question of, of how it's going to yeah. exist. But so, the solutions, I'll say this, R- Russia, Ukraine, I'll use an example. A solution will be at hand in the next few years. It's a solution a lot of people are not going to like, but there will be at some point a negotiated end to this war. It's heading that way. The United States is going to lose its appetite for giving Ukraine unlimited amounts of military aid. That's just a fact. The solution to Israel and how you deal with Gaza, how you deal with the West Bank, how you give the Palestinians a state, that may never get solved if we live to 90 years old. That is a fact. And that is something that is very hard for a lot of people to comprehend. I would agree. That's not going to be wrapped up in a nice bow um, anytime soon. Uh, And I, I think, I mean, one of the main points I would make is that for a lot of people, as impassioned as they are, it is an abstraction, you know, it's sort of, uh, even to the people who shut down the Bay bridge, I, I don't, I don't know how 
real this all is to them beyond images they're getting and and graphic footage and everything else um you know you even see that in like the west bank i mean the west bank is just a mess of a situation and you know like i read a few weeks ago there was a tom friedman column in the times which i'm not trying to be unkind it did feel like something that was written from the 1990s that just doesn't <laughs> meet the current moment which i think happens to people I would criticize Glenn Greenwald with that as well. I think Greenwald has made some good points about the hypocrisy of free speech warriors uh, who want censorship on this issue, but he keeps referring to the war on terror again and again and again. Yeah. And I feel like it's that thing of whatever was formative to you becomes the model that you keep returning to. And this is a situation that I'm sorry, I lived through that, that, you know, not, I wasn't in Fallujah, uh, but, you know, I was around in the early 2000s. This is not like the post 9-11 era. It just is not. It's infinitely no, it's not. more interesting, actually, I think, which is why we're having this conversation. And so when when Glenn keeps bringing that up and bringing that stuff up, I'm looking at I'm going, well, this just isn't this isn't relevant. This th there might be some overlaps, but, it, you know, it isn't really the situation. And when I read the Tom Friedman column. The most popular comments from New York Times readers, many of them liberal Jews, by the way, uh, was, well, we've got to clear out all the settlers from the West Bank. And this goes back to the abstraction issue. It's, well, you might feel a certain way about settlers and settlements, but there are 500,000 settlers there now. It's just this is not going to happen. It's not possible. It's logistically, politically, it's just it's not going to go down. And, you know, to say nothing of the amount of uh, Jewish people in East Jerusalem, as we're talking about, probably talking about 700,000 people. And so it's just interesting that people are looking for a, God, I don't want to say deus machina, as I always pronounce it incorrectly, but like people are almost searching for a very simple solve to this whole thing. And the more depressing answer is there's really just it's, going to be, as you're saying, it's not going to be, it's not going to be solved. It's, it's rather untenable. I mean, that, that, that is, that is the tragedy and each side in this conflict has become more radical. You have Hamas, which genuinely is committed to destruction of Israel, which does not want a secular one-state democracy. If you asked me in my perfect theoretical world what I would do, I would have a United States-style country and everyone lives in harmony, but it's not going to happen happen. It, yeah. it can't happen. Hamas doesn't want it to happen. At the same time, the Israeli government has moved much further to the right, become far less compromising. I mean, the whole settlement issue, which you just mentioned, I mean, the reason is the Netanyahu government has been pushing further and further into territory that was supposed to be set aside for this two state. It is not set aside any longer. And you have two sides that have really you know, radicalized in, in different ways. I'm not necessarily equating them, but you don't have those sort of like moderate actors, for lack of a better word, on either the Palestinian side or no. the Israeli side. I'd say each side is very maximalist, and each time they do something, it ups, ups the ante further, right? Hamas launches a horrific attack on civilians, the, the Israel 9-11, you can't undersell it. Israel no. comes back and kills 10 times as many people, and it just it'll continue right it, it's it's like the conflict is at stasis for a bit stasis where they fire rockets back and forth and now it's in open warfare and 
there's no answer. And again, that's that's why actually I don't blame the people who don't opine on this, who kind of back oh, away because there, there you don't you can write all you want and say all you want, but it's not fixable. And that, that is very yeah. hard for a lot of people to grasp. No, I have infinite respect for the people who say, as was often said in NBA circles uh, about any kind of drama, uh, my name's Bennett and I ain't in it. Uh, that's, that's something that I completely understand on this issue. And because again, is most people don't know the basics. And even if you know the basics, you know, right now there are all these protests. I mentioned the shutting down the Bay bridge and it's this ceasefire now calling for a ceasefire. Um, I don't really think that the American government could even get Israel to do that if it wanted to at this at this juncture you know maybe i'm wrong maybe somebody could say that yeah uh that, that but i just don't i don't see that i don't see that as feasible at all it seems more of a larp to say it even if you're horrified by what's happening on the ground you're just not I, yeah it's not accomplishable i i think the american government could theoretically do it because we do i think it's about 15 percent of the military budget is funded by the u.s they, they collect a lot of intelligence a lot of expertise i mean israel i wouldn't call it a client state of the united states but that relationship is very close and it, 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 perhaps they could lean on them harder but again i don't know that for sure they're, yeah I, they're, I, they're I, not gonna leave it, they're not gonna leave gaza like maybe they can get them to go less you know less hard that that would be that would be yeah. sort of your your, your request less hard uh, less civilian casualties uh, i would say to speak to the american situation which which at least is something that yeah. uh, we can wrap our arms more around than our more realm of, yeah, we don't the, have to, the, you know, break out the maps of the tunnel system the, and, you this, know, talk about that. Yeah, this outbreak, this new war, I do think has re-energized an activist left that had been losing a lot of steam in the Biden years. I'm very curious huh. to see if that continues, because I do think the the end of Trump or the, the, the end of Trump's presidency, the arrival of Biden, you've seen a general decline in small dollar donations in this sort of activism you saw in, in 2020 into 21, you know, you definitely, I think even saw a movement back to kind of like the priest 2016 status quo when hyper politics yeah. for lack of a better word did not seem to consume everything. And you've written about this as well. I'm curious to see if, if Israel in, and, and their war with Hamas, does this give new juice to some of the activists left? Now, we'll never get the COVID situation of 2020, where for mm. at least half a year, activism took everything over. Every power institution in America was consumed by activism. I do not think you'll see the return of that, but it does feel at the very minimum with these protests, with now the organizing around the ceasefire, DSA being emboldened, the, the general progressive left being emboldened. Let, is okay, this let's new talk, juice? New let's, juice. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. I'm I I am interested in the ways people do copes and how they wish cast and they 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 look at what they want to be so. And that's what they see happening. And a lot of the more institutional liberals, uh, let's call them moderate Democrats in the pundit space, 
have been singing this song of, oh, DSA has really done it now. This is the beginning of the fall of DSA. And you've written about this, that Israel was held up there as or, you know, in the aftermath of the horrific October 7th attack and everything else. DSA going all in on Palestine. This is going to be the uh, this is going to be the end of their relevance. And you're you're saying that it's not like this is not the end for them. And the people who are making this critique, I think, simply want that to be so. Or is that or is that an incorrect take on your no, take? That, that's that's a good read of it. Look, can DSA become a mass movement, multiracial working class organization that wins statewide campaigns in Pennsylvania and New York and California? No, maybe not. Right. I mean, let's get that out of the way. There is a large part of the electorate that is very pro-Israel. So if you're arguing DSA can never go to Wisconsin and elect a governor, I would agree with you. Now, to the wish casting part, if you're a Israel hawk, if you're an APEC person, if you're just very passionate about this, you're a Democrat, you want these people out of the party, you want them marginalized, you want them dead. I think you are very hoping, very much hoping that the October 7th attacks would lead to that happening. And, and my argument is well, no, there's a Quinnipiac, Quinnipiac poll that just came out a, a few days ago. That showed in very stark terms now, voters 18 to 34, a majority, over 50% now, sympathize with the Palestinian cause. And overall sympathy with the Palestinian cause rose from October until now. And that's among all voters. Israel still has the majority overall. I think Israel is always going to keep that majority. But if you look at just objective polling, the Israel hawk position, for lack of a better term, is losing traction in the Democratic electorate, especially when you factor yeah. in younger people. Now, younger people vote less. I, I'm not one of these people who, who's going to do the whole justice Democrats thing and say, oh, that's, oh that's Joe, that's Biden can't, Joe Biden can't <laughs> win without the young yeah. people. No, he, he oh, can win without win. the young people. You can't. You can't you win can. Michigan, which you which he win. won by over a hundred thousand votes. You know, no, I I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah, that's the mirror image yeah. of the other cope, which you yes. hear all the time, where it's like, oh, really? You're not okay. Where are you gonna go? Where are you gonna go if you're pro Palestine? Yeah. You're gonna go Republican? That's where you're gonna go? You think the, the sympathy is gonna be over there? I I don't I don't believe that. I don't really. I think the Biden administration appears worried about the lack of youthful enthusiasm. Um, I, you know, swinging things but, for them. But there's, but, there's, there's lack you know. of enthusiasm for Biden up and down the age groups. I mean, I don't know anyone, yeah. and we, we, I'm going to do 2024, but I, I don't really know too many people anywhere in any demographic, black, white, Latino, Asian, young, old, who are like, wow, Joe Biden, 24, let's go get it. Right. Even in 2020, yeah. it was about defeating Trump. That was what that whole election was about. Biden won. I mean, this election is going to be fascinating and terrible at the same time. So uh, the enthusiasm isn't there. I agree those who say, well, the young people will decide it. They won't decide it. But at the same time, and that's why I view it as a bit of a stalemate. The Israel Hawks are right the DSA left, the progressive left cannot take over the Democratic Party and they can't win the swing districts, right? They're not even going to elect a governor in California necessarily. 
but at the same time, they're not going anywhere and they're not shrinking. I think there's this hope mm. among the Israel hawks. Now the socialist left, now the anti-Israel left, now the anti-Zionist left. They're gonna they're gonna just keep shrinking. They're gonna be, you know, this this completely irrelevant force. And that that is not true. If anything, I would say DSA, which have been losing members the last few years, I would bet their membership roles are going to grow from all of this. I don't know how much, but I'm betting yeah. a lot of this young activist energies, people on TikTok, you know, they are going to get more into politics and they're not going to be voting for a good centrist pro-Israel yeah. Democrat. Well, it's obvious solve is that everybody needs to go on birthright, not just the Jews. That's uh, <laughs> that to get the youth to change their minds on this. I mean, what do you make of that? You You've posited that some of it is because BB is a, a figure on the right and the younger people have those associations. He had a very toxic relationship with Obama, which was always interesting yes. to me. Um, so maybe that informs it. Others would say it's just demographics, that the most Israel-supportive non-Jewish cohort is white evangelical, and as America gets less like that, you're just going to inevitably have not as much Israel support. Um, and then others might posit that it's the other stuff we talked about, that this idea of the oppressor versus oppressed has really gained more traction among young people. And this fits into that mechanism. Uh, what do you, what do you make of why, why, why did the young hate Israel, Ross? Uh, what's your, it's, your grand theory? It's, it's, it's a little of all of it. I, I do start with the Israeli government has not been run by center-left politicians in a very long time. This is not like in the United States where the Democrats and the Republicans are trading power on and off. The UK certainly has had a you know conservative government since 2010, but the Labour Party there is still quite relevant. It probably is going to win the next election. Israel now in terms of those who are in power, not the country itself, there's a lot of anti, and there's a lot of anti Netanyahu energy in Israel. I do think the pro Palestinian side undersells the street protests in Israel from Jewish people who don't like Netanyahu or even calling for a ceasefire in Israel. That's all there. It's very much there. Mm. But who's in power? Who runs the government? It is a center right to far right. Netanyahu, in order to stay in power, I'm not going to go too into the weeds on this had to form coalitions with incredibly conservative, ultra-Orthodox, ultra-nationalists, settler, colonialist type of people, people who are, it, it's very hard to empathize with them in any way. That, that is, and that has been this political well, situation for the last 15 years, I would say. Yeah. So you start, you start there as, if you're a frame of reference, if you're 25 years old, 30 years old, yeah. that is what you know. You don't know anything else. So I, I would start there and then I'll get to the other stuff. No, I think you're making a good point. And I was just going to raise a distinction that in a way, such people, as you mentioned, are difficult for us living in the West to understand, but their perspective is probably more common around the world, um, which is my people over your people. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I saw Isaac Chotner uh, had that interview yes. with uh, one of the founders of the settler movement. And a lot of what she said, I saw, I saw journalists and people just freaking out about some of the things she said and 
her perspective on life is not my perspective on life, but I was a little bit amused because I thought a lot of what she was saying of, well, I care about my children more than your, you know, more than I care about your children, that sort of thing. That's more in keeping with just traditional perspective. And in a weird way, I felt like the interview was just a reminder of how the modern man and woman are, are just so divorced from these kinds of clannish prerogatives mm -hmm. that dictate so much of the world and so much of the, you know, greater Middle Eastern region, you know, um, this is getting off on a tangent, but in a weird way, this issue is often people who are pro-Israel and liberal talking to liberals about it. Um, they'd almost be better off just saying that, hey, this is that part of the world and this is how things are. But they're often trying to kind of make it rhyme with Western sensibilities and going, mm -hmm. you know, it's not an ethno state. You know, the minorities in Israel have full rights and democracy. It's just... I, I don't know. It kind of is. It, it kind of is an ethnostate, but it is an ethnostate. It is, and I I agree. You you can't at some point you have you can't graft like the Western American situation no. onto it because on each side there's that failure because Israel the pro-Israel side is wrong in the sense that. Israel is literally a country dedicated to the preservation of a Jewish minority in a way the United States is not dedicated in its constitution yeah. to maintaining a white Christian majority. As much as that has been part of yeah. the U.S. and you have many xenophobic and racist people, there's a reason it was not written in our constitution and why today, even the Republican Party, you can have a top candidate who's Indian no. American. It, it, and if it, it weren't for Trump, it could be even the nominee, right? It, it's, no, it's a it's, different it, country. It, it, yeah, if if the U.S. was operating like that in a way that was analogous to Israel, it would be opening up its doors to like white South Africans and, uh, you know, giving them incentives to come to like uh, boost the demography. Yes. That's not really how it goes over here. And I think the if you're somebody who's defending Israel, you're probably on firmer ground just saying, look, you know, yes, it's an ethno state and Iran is for the Persians and Turkey. It's not for the Kurds. You know, it's not for the Armenians. You know, this is just how that part of the world tends to operate. But there's this odd need with this specific country and its relationship with our country to try to um, and there is a bit of cultural familiarity and commonality too i don't want to dismiss that and um yeah you know you're probably more at home in tel aviv as as an american than you would be in i don't know um yemen but anyway you were saying i would say the left too makes the mistake of all brown people are alike the egyptians don't want the palestinians the no Ask the Saudi government, okay, we're going to let all the Palestinians emigrate to Egypt and Saudi Arabia, and they're all going to be become become full-fledged citizens and get the, the protections that their citizens enjoy. They'd say, well, well no way, right? So I, I do yep. think, yes, the, the more you get into it, you, you cannot just take the kind of easy left-right binary, the, the easy kind of, uh, you know, the racial de demographics and dynamics we are used to in the United States, 
as, as critical as I am of Israel, and I have been very critical of Israel, and I do write from a left perspective, the idea that Zionism in Israel is a white project, I mean, that's also very silly. You Sephardic Jews, yeah. Sephardic Jews are very yeah. much a part of, of the dynamic here. I mean, e- even in New York City, I mean, Syrian Jews uh, ha- have, have a lot of power and influence. And yeah. so th- this idea that, speaking, that it's all... The, speaking yeah. generally, Ross, generally... The more hardcore bomb them all, turn Palestine into a parking lot perspective <laughs> tends to be shared more fervently among the Mizrahi and among, you know, let's just say, oh, yeah. I don't want to say brown or Jews because it's it's a fairly brown country. Yeah. But yes, this is, you know, you would have to know about these things to know about these things. Um, I, it's funny. I might be less critical of Israel, Ross, uh, than you are, but at the same time, I retain this. And look, this is just, hey, hey if, you, if you tuned in for my Israel takes, you're getting a lot of them, folks. I don't know if you just really signed up for it, but it's happening. I am like more well, a little so bit. So when you subscribe to a Jewish Substacker, you're, you're going to get them at some point. I'm a little bit more like sympathetic to the paleocon perspective and the isolationist perspective. And in a weird way, I'm more accepting of Israel just as a country, like the way I look at countries, I go, okay, well that's Turkey and that's Israel and that's Egypt. Um, but I'm less, uh, into the idea of the United States being entangled with it. And so I, I have less of the reflexive moral opprobrium and they're bad and they're doing, and they're, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but unlike many people who, who have less of that perspective, uh, I'm also not necessarily just great with the idea that the United States funds these proxy wars and, um, you know, more or less loots the treasury to, uh, uh, you know, help the governments in all these different regions. And I, I don't think that that's uh, something that I'm broadly in favor of. So if you you, you have now heard the um, – the House of Strauss foreign policy, which is open to, <laughs> you know, discussion. You know, I, I, I can hear points. I can hear a point. But it's it's been weird. I, I have friends of mine right now, especially Jewish friends of mine, who I would say would be, let's just say, way more woke than I am, who are also way more into the idea of the United States funding Israel and funding their military efforts. So it's been a very strange month or so, Ross. It definitely has, and I know my own frustration as an American Jew who's never been to Israel and is, for, for, for all my criticisms criticisms of the United States, a proud American. I don't like that Judaism is so tied up in the actions of this one country many thousands of miles away, and I find that the anti-Semites and the Zionists Zionists are sometimes playing the same rhetorical game where the Jew must be accountable for what's Mm. happening in Israel, that the Netanyahu government is speaking for Judaism. And if you're a raging anti-Semite, if you're a David Duke, or if you're a hardcore Zionist Jew, often you're not speaking a language that is so different in the sense that 
the, this the whole dual loyalty trope, right? Who who are you loyal to, the United States or Israel? Mm. My answer as an American is I'm I'm loyal to America, and that's uh. the interests of this country are my interests, and I, I want safety for the U.S. and I want safety for the world. I want peace for the world, but I am a little weary as an American Jew of having to expend so much mental energy and having so much of my taxpayer dollars, you know, going into these proxy wars and conflicts where if you took a step back, I think, I think you're doing the same thing, right? Take a step back, take out all of your ideological priors. Why do we care more about Israel and Gaza than we do about Sudan? Why do we care more about this than Armenia, why do we care more about this even to an extent than, than China, Taiwan, right? Well, it, it doesn't it, really make sense when you, yeah. you take out you take out all the historical reasons why we know why, but really just analyze it cold you know, in, a, in a sort of a clear-headed, real politic way. It, it's all a little crazy. Yeah, the only real argument for it, I shouldn't say the only real argument for it because there might be others, but... It would be there's cultural commonality there. There's cultural sure. affinity there. They they are more like us than the people in Sudan. But people would would be very reluctant to make that exact that exact argument that I just that I just made. Uh, but yeah, that's you know more or less how I see it. I see foreign policy as something that should always be run through the filter of how does this benefit the citizens of the United States, and it so rarely is. And yes, I do believe in the military industrial complex and this dynamic that happens of looking uh, for an excuse for a reason to fund these adventures. And um, yeah, I'm very much, very much wary of it as you're saying, but let's talk about to bring it back to the domestic. Um, you know, we discussed the possibility that we're both skeptical of, of, uh, maybe Arab Americans and the youth just not supporting the Democrats anymore over this. But might there be something of a red shift happening among Jews, specifically in the region that you cover for a variety of reasons? Most recently, this, um, you know, the we just had the special elections. I would say that the Republicans had a bad night, but for New York. And in the midterms, the Republicans had a bad night, but for New York. Um, is there an aspect of this attributable to a red shift? You know, Jews vote majority Democrat. There are, you know, a variety of survey data that, and I'm not sure what the exact number is, but is it's that slipping? Is that like changing? 70, I think it's something nationally like 70%. Um, traditionally. Yeah. I'm, skepti I'm skeptical of that number a little bit just because I'm not sure the ultra orthodox are the best survey answerers, but, you know, who knows? That might be the number. Um, so, yeah. If if you are a observant or religious Jew, you are very likely voting Republican in general elections. And that's been happening in New York now for, for many years in Orthodox neighborhoods and in places where Jews are very observant. They might register as Democrats to vote in primaries, but come election time, this was true for Obama-Romney, it was true for Trump-Biden, they're voting Republican. I mean, that is a fact. There are still many more secular Jews than 
Orthodox Jews, I do think that dynamic, yeah. as we discussed, is going to keep changing because the secular Jews simply aren't reproducing in the same way, and then they're intermarrying. It, it's just a, it, it's a different um, it's a, it's a different dynamic. Whereas the Orthodox are very committed to preserving their way of life and their culture. So I think over time you're going to see that dynamic. Now there's the New York question. There's the national question. Nationally, I mean, Jews there's aren't enough of them to really swing a national election. So I, yeah. I'm not overly compelled by the question of oh, but, Biden but and Le- the Jews. But can, Lee Zeldin, Lee Zeldin it, got it's pretty close considering the dynamics that night. Yeah, Zel- so in New, in New York. In New York, you have a lot more Jews. So, you know, yeah. Zeldin did well with other demographics too. There are Asian Americans who cared about public safety. You know, white white non Jews who cared about public safety and, and crime. You know, I mean, New York New York is is a little of it of its own thing. I've been thinking more through it because I think in no other state does one city occupy the imaginations of everyone else. California is like mm. so big and diffusing. Even I imagine even San Francisco, as, as much as San Francisco consumes people, there's Los Angeles, right? There's other power bases. Uh, the, the suburbs too, the, the city suburb dynamic is very fascinating in New York. You know, New York in some ways invented the suburbs. You, know, you think of Long Island and, yeah. and Westchester, Yes, exactly. The post-war expansion and and this post-war expansion culturally was built on the idea that cities are dens of sin and and are unsafe places to be. This is not where you raise a family. This is not where you build a life. You get a, a garage you get a, a front lawn, you get a backyard, you get out of the city. That's how you've made it. And I think in, in, in many respects that that mindset, I, I actually call it the fortress mindset recently, has never gone away, particularly mm. on Long Island. Now, Democrats mm. have traditionally done okay in Long Island. They're actually still doing well in Westchester. But Long Island and Westchester are different because Long Island is not urbanized in the way Westchester is. Westchester has real cities. People from New York don't realize if you go to Yonkers or New Rochelle, oh, they actually look like downtowns of like small American cities, and they are. Whereas Long Island, you don't have that. It is like a single family homeowner, uh, two counties, several million people, and that is the overriding dynamic. So in the past, it seemed like those kinds of people were willing to support moderate Democrats as well. And now perhaps because of the perceptions of high crime, certainly now perhaps the, the Israel situation, we'll see how that plays out. These people have increasingly become not just registering Republican, but voting Republican to the point where on Long Island, Republicans are now as dominant as they were in the 1970s. They control pretty much every single local office in Nassau and Suffolk County. It's pretty remarkable. And this is not true of Westchester, north of the city, a bit more perhaps cosmopolitan and urbanized. Long Island, my my theory of Long Island, and not to go too deep into it, is if you never really go into New York City, if you don't spend a lot of time there, but you spend a lot of time thinking about it, you are going to develop ideas and feel very passionately, and you are going to project your anxieties onto it. 
New York is a fairly safe, big American city. It was interesting. You wrote about the carjacking issue in San Francisco. I have a car in, in, in Brooklyn. My car has never been broken into. I'm 34. I've never been mugged in New York City. I'm out and about all the time. I park my car in the streets at night. I take it around. You're talking about big American cities, New York City, you know, pound for pound. You can go through the data. It's got issues. It's got homelessness issues, substance abuse issues. I don't want to undersell it, but it's a pretty safe, big American city. But if you're consuming cable TV, you know, if you go in and have a bad experience, you go to Midtown, right? You come off the train, you see a homeless person, you see some craziness, you're on Twitter, um, you see it as a hellhole. And I do think that that affects your political outlook. And, and, and whereas I don't want to sugarcoat in New York City, there's real challenges, but it's nothing like it was in the 1990s or, or even like the, the early 2000s. Yeah. It, it's it slipped from 2019 pre-pandemic. But I'd also argue it's come a long way from even 2020, 21, that the nightlife is back. You go to Brooklyn, to Queens. I mean, the, the, the subways are packed again at night. I mean, stuff is happening. I mean, it, it is a, a vibrant city. The emptying out of the downtown, which has been a problem in San Francisco and some of these other cities, it's not really a thing in New York, but mm. the perception has not changed. And I do think that that does drive some some political changes. Yeah, um, that's an interesting dynamic. And I've seen it in my own family. I've, I mean... They're in Westchester, but the way my aunt talks about going into New York City uh, when I was living in New York City was not my impression of it, but she was out in the suburbs and had been there for a while, and she had a certain perspective. I'm very—it might take a while for this to present itself, but I am intrigued by the ultra-Orthodox just going now increasingly out of the pandemic all in— on the Republican party. I just, I view this as an eventual time bomb that will just be interesting to follow from afar. Uh, I think some estimates are that there are 200,000, uh, 200,000 people in New York city, which isn't that much. I kind of feel like it's more than that. It's, it's hard to get a read on it. Actually. It's not like there's an official census for something like that, but it's a population that by some indicators might double every 15 years. And, um, I think you are, I mean, you follow this stuff more so than I do. I wonder if this is going to announce itself as a serious, uh, political story fairly soon, um, and be the source of a lot of, uh, New York media consternation from media members who would prefer Democrats win. I mean, that's something that I see down the line. You tell me if I'm over-interpreting the data. So the population in New York City is going to be interesting because they've been growing here, but they're also moving into the suburbs, not to Long Island, but to Rockland County in, in particular, north of the yeah. city. There's a very large Hasidic community there now, and they've taken over the school board. There's, there's been a lot of tension with the locals. So it's going to be interesting to see where they all go because there's only given the lifestyle of having a lot of children New York City can be a very tough place to have five, six, seven, eight yeah. kids. Um, now, north of the city, or perhaps you know, parts of Long Island have become very orthodox in Nassau County. Definitely, they are already becoming influential. 
the the orthodox vote is a republican vote already the only time it's not is in democratic primaries but if you're talking general elections they're already voting republican i think it's going to be a question of numbers and where they migrate to and where they continue to settle how much decide you know towns upstate are more amenable how many remain in sort of the ultra orthodox sectors of new york city you know you have a few select neighborhoods in new york where most orthodox and hasidic and they're different i'm not you know the orthodox versus the hasidic jews who do their own thing some of which are anti-zionist there are anti-zionist hasidic jews they are out there so what happens with them is very interesting they are voting republican in general elections that's a done deal um, it's going to be a matter of when we talk about Jews in America in 20 and 30 years, are we only talking or mostly talking about them demographically? That is plausible as more secular Jews stop observing, intermarry, have less children. That is a number that, that is just the numbers dynamic of it. You know, at what time in the future will the Jew in America be? chiefly an orthodox jew I mean, that's a fascinating question yeah. but i do you think we're heading in that direction the future is uh the youth of america as the enter middle age uh setting up a marxist uh socialist <laughs> government but new york state voting for the republican party because of all the ultra orthodox that is uh, i think that we can confidently say that is the future. Um, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm just watching it. I'm just watching it all play out. Um, you know, we have kind of a one party situation where I live, so it's uh, it's all more observed than anything that's that's happening surrounding me. Uh, Bay Bridge getting shut down, notwithstanding. Um, but I quite enjoy your work and explorations of it and, uh, efforts towards dispassion. Is there any topic that you wish that we had spoken about? Sometimes you message me about sports stuff. I don't know. We could talk about that. I don't, I don't understand the NBA in season tournament at all. <laughs> I, I don't get it. I, I don't understand. Like I'm again, I'm, I'm, I'm chiefly a baseball fan. So I'm trying to imagine that sometime in, in May they would hold a tournament and you know some random team would win, and then yeah. they'd feel good about it. Like, why would you want to win an in-season tournament? Is it because you know you can't win the NBA finals? Like, you don't <laughs> have the superstar, but you can surprise in a weird tournament. I genuinely don't get it. What? What? what, what yeah, it, why it, would you care about it? It exists in this liminal uh, space, much like the West Bank. The in-season tournament does. <laughs> um, I'm not sure. <laughs> It would be, it'd be hard to get into all the nuances about Are it. My players take on the excited? Does a player want to win it? Is a player like, yes, in-season tournament. I'm an in-season tournament champion, and I will get this ring or banner. Well, they get and, and money. They get money. They get, a good ca- they get a good cash prize for winning, so there's that incentive. I don't think there's any pride. There's nothing like that. But there's a sense of I get money from winning. Um, from what I've heard, there's a sense from teams that it's almost a little bit of a dry run of the postseason, potentially. That's how they're talking about it and then the coaches they get paid so little relatively Mm. uh you know a step down from the head coach that the money is quite significant so they're going to care most of all now what's interesting is that the general managers the people in basketball ops they get nothing from winning so (laughs) it's this funny dynamic where the architect of the team has really 
pretty much no incentive to win the in-season tournament. There's just nothing really in it for you. Um, and so, yeah, you're not going to get fired because you failed the in-season tournament. You might be fired if your team is playing hard to win the in-season tournament and your star blows out his well, that's Achilles. Right. Let's think, I'm a fan and in the, I'm Brooklyn net fan. They're, they're terrible or mediocre, but let's say they were good and you had a superstar and, and we, you win the in-season tournament, but you, you lose your, your top player in, in January. That's, that's horrible. I'm not going to be yeah. excited. I won the in-season tournament at all. No, it'd be, it'd be I, like the world baseball classic when you lose your top player and you're just mad about it, but at least the world baseball classic has the nationalism element to it, which makes it exciting because the foreign players care a lot. And, and that yeah. is fun to watch, but yeah. this in season thing, I, I I'm perplexed. I'm, I'm no, trying it to definitely understand it. Is, it's like more neoliberal Ted talk stuff from, from Adam silver, um, where we will means test the in season tournament perhaps, and, and, you know, develop the proper way that the proper people will, will enjoy it. But, uh, yeah, my take on it is that there might be something there that you can maybe break up the NBA season and portion out part of it to be some sort of cool tournament. And that that might be interesting to people, but looking at the viewership, the in-season tournament games are just being watched like regular season games. Well, that's what I was going to say. Do the fan, are the fans treating them differently? No, they are not. Okay. Uh, they, they, they tried to spin it like it was that, but it's not that. Uh, the Spurs played the Thunder and about a million people watched, which is not a great number for the NBA. And I mostly, I don't attribute that to the courts looking funny. I attribute it to um, just it's a regular season game between two small small market teams, and that's the number it gets. And when the NBA had its chest puffed out about all the people who watched Lakers Suns, uh, well, that's a regular season game with LeBron James versus yes. Kevin Durant. That's not yes, that's... about the, the courts being painted different. And well, why are these games being watched as though they are regular season games? It is because they are indeed regular season games. They count towards your regular season record. Uh, these ideas about group stages and everything else mean nothing to your average fan. Um, and when you point out these uh, numbers to people in the NBA, they're, they're telling me just wait until they get to Vegas, wait until it's single elimination. Then you can judge whether this is a success or not. Hmm. And I agree, but if it's not showing any kind of traction relative to the regular season, then I just don't. I don't think it's going to be as much of a thing as they think it's going to be. I've looked at the schedule. Some of the, um, the, the, I guess we'll call them playoff games or elimination games are going up against football. I don't think America is really going to care. The, the championship game is, has a total clear shot, clean slate Saturday night with nothing else going on. So that might be appealing to people, but I just don't, I don't know. After all the money spent on this, all the promotion, the idea that you're going to break it out and sell it to Netflix, uh, I, I mean, good luck, I, I suppose. Uh, I mean, it just, it's, uh, hey, it's, uh, we'll, we'll see about it. But my initial 
My initial response is critical. I get a lot of shit for being critical of the NBA, but I'm sorry they lost half their audience in about a decade. Yes. And maybe somebody should be. Uh, so I'm not just going to I'm not just going to rubber stamp these ideas that make no sense to me, such as when they had the all-star teams picked like pickup ball style yes. by a player and they went away from it because it was such a stupid failure. I mean, we could stand to have more people. I guess what I'm saying is this as I'm rambling, Ross, is that an NBA hater over the last half a decade would end up more correct uh, despite right. being biased than the mainstream writer for an NBA publication. So, and I would put that in this bucket. I am not, I'm not impressed by the in-season tournament. Uh, I'm not impressed by how it's been set up. I don't think it's a good idea, but maybe if they make some changes to it, and reimagine it as it were, it could be something that's rather intriguing yeah. that shortens the regular season. So well, yes, that is my yeah. Point. Well, I, I, as you've written, every sports league outside the NFL is is in some sort of flux because the cable TV money bonanza yeah. is ending, and no one has a good answer ex except the NFL, which is immune to these kinds of forces. So I think NBA, MLB, NHL they're all to a degree dealing with this. And I think this, this is the yeah. existential challenge. It's not, I, you know, I, I'm as a, as a baseball person, I'm used to years hearing, Oh, the youth don't care. The youth don't care. But I think you've been good on this. Gen Z is not engaged in any sport. Like no. we were in older generations were. So this is kind of a problem across the board. And then the cord cutting problem is the biggest problem of all. And, no one has yet solved that. I'm very interested to see when the rubber hits the road, probably in this next decade, when suddenly the money spigot is not quite there because these regional cable deals, certainly on the baseball side, are not going to be the same. And obviously on the NBA side too, different. it's different now. The ESPN shrinking, uh, ESPN suddenly quite vulnerable. Disney itself in free fall i mean Dude, it's, it's it's a really interesting moment warner brothers is in free fall too i mean matt bellany who's been on the podcast just sounded the alarm yesterday looking at their their money situation going i don't know how they're going to be able to credibly bid on nba rights they're making billions of dollars less than what they had projected about a year ago and so I, you know, the NBA might have just lost a game of musical chairs. I mean, they keep talking about how Amazon or Netflix or whoever is going right. to rush in to save them. Right. And who knows? I'm not making those decisions. I'm not in those corporate boardrooms. Our Jewish conspiracy uh, only extends <laughs> so far. Um, but, you know, they might have just lost a game of musical chairs. Now, it's you can say that at least they're trying to create events because that's what they're suffering from. As you're saying, these sports that are not doing as well, they're inventory sports. Those are the ones, you know, take out everything, take out, you know, politics or, you know, signaling or rule changes or any of these things. It's just, if you have a ton of games, you're losing right now. If you've got fewer games on a predictable schedule, such as, the NFL and college football, you're, you're doing great. So how do you get there? This is the NBA, I think, doing a half measure. And they almost have the right idea that they're going about the wrong way, which I think I would say generally of Adam Silver. He often, he's like the king of getting it, but not getting it. 
Like yeah. he kind of gets what he has to do, but doesn't have the force of will to actually accomplish it and make some of the hard choices. So I think that's what's before the NBA, the NHL, MLB is how do you make this into events? How do you, in all the noise, at a time where the youth care more about Gaza than games, send a signal <laughs> that you've got an event for them to watch? That is the big challenge currently. It's 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 huge and cutting through the noise in a culture like this one, especially where building mass interest, anything outside the Super Bowl is pretty much impossible. I mean, this, this is, it's a huge, huge issue. And, and it does seem like, you know, think, think of Adam Silver versus David Stern, you know, Bud Selig was much maligned, but Selig versus Manfred. I, I do think both the N, both the NBA and MLB, and I do give MLB credit for the rule changes, but I think in general that they're not necessarily run by dynamic visionaries mm, uh, the way yeah. they were. I think Selig had a lot of issues, but he was a visionary for the sport. Stern certainly was in the NBA. Goodell knows what he's doing with the NFL. You have to give him credit yeah. for that. He, he, he knows how to steer this battleship forward. So it, it does feel like the leagues right now are tre treading, treading water a bit mm. and, and trying to find that way forward in a median media environment that is shifting rapidly and, and certainly where streaming is not necessarily the answer either you know in the streaming dynamics you know again outside the tech giants have you know unlimited money really amazon is unlimited money even apple to an extent their stock has stopped growing you know streaming's streaming's a disaster too i mean netflix the, yeah. the whole streaming model doesn't never really made a whole lot of sense i think we're seeing that now so it's it's a lot of different a collision of a lot of different things right now and i think it's a big issue for sports no, it's it's an industry in in turmoil and um that's one of the that's one of the fuel fuel sources of my particular website at a time where i think some of the cultural stuff and i might write about this is almost less less so because it's calmed down institutionally as we talked about at the beginning um, I think we covered most of the bases of the domestic controversy. Uh, I don't think we got into the uh, hostage posters being ripped down, but mm. I'm not sure what there is to say about that. It's uh, don't rip down the posters. No, no, no good defense but, for it, I would say. But I do think it's a little sort of radical chic, you know, on a part of the, the yeah. pro-Palestinian side doing something subversive to prove a point to strike a blow at Israeli propaganda or something. But it, it's, it's yeah. certainly not defensible. Um, you can protest all you want. And I, I support free speech. But, you know, tearing down a poster, you know, someone put that up there. You're not winning by doing it. Well, the interesting <laughs> conversation is, is it backfiring to film such people doing such a thing to amplify it i don't know i i cannot we cannot address every topic in this complete mess <laughs> of a situation ross i have no idea if we've angered people or edified them <laughs> with this conversation Hopefully or if both. you can even edify people like that i i don't know i've i maybe maybe not we try to approach it dispassionately um, we tried to just, uh, give some takes, uh, you know, some mental fodder, some fuel. And ironically enough, we'll probably piss somebody off with 
talking about the in-season tournament in such a way that is totally unforeseen. So uh, what do you want to plug for us on the uh, I'm gonna, I'm of this whole thing? I'm going to plug my Substack, Political Currents. It, it's just, it's uh, you can do rossbarkin.substack.com or rosselliottbarkin.com. So check out my Substack and subscribe. I'm doing a lot of fun, interesting writing there. So subscribe. That Pay. is true. The, Payment is good. The the best reporter on the topic of New York politics, which you might say to yourself, hey, I don't live in New York. That's not where I live. I don't want to read also it. There's a lot of non-New York no... stuff on there, a lot of non-New York stuff. So for our national would, audience, would... the metrics tell me I have a good California audience now. So, ah, Well, I would just add, yes, there's a lot of non-New York stuff, but also New York politics is so colorful and wacky and just hysterical that it's worth a follow even if you don't live in the region ross this has been excellent thank you so much thank you for having me